Well, you've had a, a three-week break from the book of Romans. I think I did say I was going to do something else, but I think having thought about it for the last couple of weeks, um, we'll just go back to Romans and uh, resume and uh, pick up where we left off, which is at the beginning of chapter 12. So Romans chapter 12 and reading verses 1 through to 8. And, and Paul has been expanding the glories of the gospel uh, all the way through from uh, chapter 1 through to chapter 11. And uh, there's a significant uh, change of mood, if you like, to use a linguistic sense, uh, change of mood as he begins chapter 12. And he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as, living sacrif- as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, uh, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgments, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ." And individually, members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this passage, once again we ask that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So one of the things that I've uh, regularly come across as you know, I've been a Christian for 40 plus years, Christian believer, and uh, one of the things I've come across regularly is someone who says, um, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Uh, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And it's said with such certainty um, that it often takes, takes one by surprise until you get used to it, and then you realize people, a lot of people think that. And, uh, you know, but it does kind of take you aback if you're not used to it. I can be a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be part of a church. I'm, I can just be a, a Christian by myself. And, of course, there are some uh, situations where that has to be true. Uh, obvious one. The thief on the cross who is beside Jesus. And uh, that thief, one of the thieves, not both of them, but one of them, recognized Jesus as the Christ. And so he, in, he 
spoke to Jesus in faith. And Jesus promises to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'm not going to be able to save you from your death, but today you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, well, wonderful. Deathbed, or death on the cross, uh, conversion. And, you know, you didn't have a chance to go to church. <laughs> you didn't have a chance uh, to get to know other believers. He just knew Jesus. And uh, he was saved. And there's, you know, there are extreme cases where that's, that's true. Um, uh, there may be isolated individuals who are uh, believers, but they have no church to go to. There are parts of the world where that's true, of course. So if you're in that category, then you're exempt from this idea that you have to go to church if there isn't a church to go to. But none of us are in that category. And nobody in Solihull is in that category. Because there are churches to go to. So none of the people I've ever met are actually in that category that can say, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. It's false. It's not true. The Bible couldn't take a more diametrically opposed position. And we see this here in this passage uh, in Romans chapter 12, where he begins, Paul begins to speak about the transformed life. Um, how does the gospel transform a life? How does the gospel change a life? We spent a lot of time talking about the gospel. And the fundamentals of the gospel. But that gospel is to have a profound effect and a profound impact on the community of believers. And so as we come to chapter 12, we notice that there's a a significant transition. um, A transition of mood, if you like. And it's marked by that word, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore. And so throughout the letter so far, Paul's been speaking about the wonderful saving righteousness of Jesus Christ. uh, The wonderful saving righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And this involves the the sending of his son into the world. And Jesus Christ coming to do the saving work for us. Which means that our justification, our being made right with God, our receiving Righteousness from God is, can be received by that lone instrument called faith. And that in itself is a gift of God. But we receive a righteousness from God. And that same faith, in that same faith, we discovered as we're looking through in chapter 6 and into chapter 7 and chapter 8. That, that through that faith, God makes a, a definitive break with the past life. So the, the, the sin that was your master before you were a Christian believer, and the sin that ruled over you, its hold over you is broken. It doesn't have authority over you. It doesn't any longer determine your destiny. Rather, you have a new king, Jesus Christ. And you live in a new kingdom, a kingdom of grace. 
You walk in a new environment. It's like you've moved from, you've emigrated from one country to another. But all of that by grace. God has moved you into a new kingdom. And you have a new king. Now it doesn't mean that your sin is gone from your life. You still sin, but it doesn't rule you. In the sense that it doesn't determine your destiny. And God, by his grace, is sanctifying you. Making you more Jesus-like in your, your life. This is, uh, this is what Paul says. If you go back to chapter 7, verse 4. He says this, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law and all its consequences and all its... Uh, Uh, all the things that it's going to do to you through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God for while we were living in the flesh our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear, bear fruit for death but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive So that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. You see, if I may go back to that verse, I mean, the whole problem of people coming to the law is, is that because we are bound up in sin and sin rules over us, when the law comes, it's almost like it's it's like a match to to gunpowder. It stimulates sin in us. The law has that strange effect on us. It stimulates sin in us, not because of the law itself. But because of what we are. But now, as we are in Christ Jesus, freed from that condition. So we now live in a new way by the Spirit. It doesn't mean we jettison the law, as he goes on to talk about later, but it means we're not ruled in the same way. And so the question is now, as we come to chapter 12, what, is, what does this new life look like? And this is what Paul begins to unfold here in this passage. And Paul is speaking here not just of, what, what he's saying here is not simply a, a practical appendix, kind of tacked onto the end, <coughs> excuse me, uh, attacked onto the end for all sorts of pragmatic reasons, but actually what he's doing is working out how the gospel, which he has been unfolding in chapters 1 through to 11, ought to change our lives. How is it going to look? If you have this gospel, what's going to happen? And we see right at the beginning, of course, it's all of this is by the mercies of God. Verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What what he's saying here is, as as you have seen and as you have understood all this about God's mercy, this is what your life must now look like. As you see the goodness of God, as you see and rejoice in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, then this is the new life you get, that you get on with obeying. So what does he say? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship so he begins by talking about presenting your bodies so it's not just mental in here 
It's not just spiritual. It's everything about you. He really means bodies. And everything that you do with them. And yes, you think with your bodies. You can't think without a body, actually. You can't think without a brain. But everything about you has to be presented to God as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? Living sacrifice. It means that you recognize that you, as a Christian, you're no longer your own. You don't belong to yourself and you're giving a bit of yourself to Jesus. But all of you belongs to him. And in him, in Christ, in that state, here's the wonderful thing, you're holy and you're acceptable to him. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing, but it comes with that statement. You need to give all of yourself to him because you belong to him. And this is your, what he, what's written here as your spiritual worship. I think possibly that's a poor translation. Um, if you look at the footnotes, you'll see there's a, if you've got an ESV like mine, you'll see there's a footnote there, footnote six. It says your rational service. <coughs> that's a more literal rendering of it. Your rational or reasonable service. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But this is uh, an overarching statement that he makes about how uh, about the Christian life, which Paul is now going to expand in three steps, which I want to look at this evening. And the first step starts in verse 2 with renewing of the mind. Uh, then the second step is, is how you think then about other Christians in a new way, verses 3 through to 5. And then the third step is how is that you're to play your part in life together. So three things. First of all, renewing the mind. And verse 2 says, uh, beginning of verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul starts with the mind. He's, he's going to get to the whole of you, but he begins with the mind. Because what Paul is thinking about here is a rational, logical response to what he's been teaching already. That's what the, the Greek word means. Therefore, rational, uh, uh, rational service rather than spiritual worship. Uh, so it's not some nebulous feelings-based response. This is something that you think through and you work out. And he puts it negatively, first of all, do not be conformed to this world. So he uses the word world there, but uh, that's the translation. But it's really eon. Uh, The Greek word is eon. And it really means age. So he's talking about the current evil age. He's saying, do not be conformed to this current age. And the idea here is, don't be put under uh, this age's scheme or pattern. Just think about this for a minute. Um, If you're a Christian today, uh, you have been, as I said earlier, you've been translated, as it were, from one kingdom into another. You've been moved from one to another. Um, uh, you have one ma- from one master to another. 
And that's a profound difference that has happened to you. And you have to leave behind, therefore, the old ways of thinking to now learn some new ways of thinking as a Christian in a new age. Because there's a profound sense in which you're no longer of this age as a Christian. You're in it, but you're not of it. You're of a new age. You're of the age to come. And therefore, it's imperative that you don't submit to this age's schemes and ideas. And therefore, in the world that we live in, walk in and move in, we don't just simply go with the flow of what the world says. Just because the newspaper, the Times, the Guardian, or whatever you read, uh, says something, doesn't mean it's right. Just because the BBC wants to report something, doesn't mean it's the most important thing in God's world. Just because your friends say one thing, doesn't mean you have to think like them. You You can think differently because you're a Christian. Now, of course, there's a certain comfort in just going with the flow, doing what everybody else is doing. And it avoids controversy and difficulty. But if you're a Christian, you can't be governed by what the world thinks. In the end, you may agree with the world, but you're not governed by what the world thinks. So we're not to be conformed uh, to this world, to this age. Now instead of that, instead of being conformed, Paul then puts it positively. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed. As it were, uh, undergo a metamorphosis. That's the Greek word. A metamorphosis. And uh, metamorphosis, I first came across that when I came out, began to learn about caterpillars and butterflies. So the, the caterpillar, at a certain point in its life, I don't know what it does. It seems to form this thing, pupae around it. What, what does it do? <laughs> you know better than me. <laughs> Was that a chrysalis? That's right. Yeah, and so it's in there. And then one day it kind of breaks out. And, uh, and it's not what it was when it went in. It's a beautiful butterfly. And it seems to happen very, from our, from our perspective, seems to happen very suddenly. Now, Paul's not talking about an abrupt change here. But he is talking about a change, a, a metamorphosis in the Christian mind when you come to faith in Jesus. There is a, an ongoing change that happens in the Christian in the, throughout the life of a believer. And it begins with the, the renewal of the mind, and then it begins to spread out into the rest of your body and all the things that you do and the things you like to do and the things you don't like to do. And, uh, and so when somebody becomes a Christian, that transformation of mind has already begun, and they have had their minds exposed to things that in the gospel that before they'd never really thought about before. They thought about the depth of their own sin and that salvation is necessary and that the sheer grace of God and the glory of the work of Christ, they'd come to appreciate all of those things. So already there's a, there's a kind of metamorphosis going on in the mind when somebody becomes a Christian, but that never stops. 
We're always having to shed the old ways of thinking and replacing them with new ways of thinking. So the practical outcome of this is that through testing, and parts of life are going to be testing and difficult, you can begin to discern and approve the will of God. See, without that metamorphosis, you will never approve of God's will. But it's a work of grace that's going on in you. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does he mean by the will of God here? Well, uh, not the overarching plan of God, the decrees of God that he has settled from eternity past. We don't know all of those things that God has decreed. There are certain things that are hidden from us. But there are certain other things that are written down for us that we can know, which are God's will, his commands, what God wants us to do. It's all there in the scripture. And, And of course, as the metamorphosis continues, so we grow in wisdom, in knowing how to apply the things that God has told us to do in the particular situations that we are in. Often Christians feel like, I'm studying this with some other pastors at the moment, but often Christians feel like there are collisions of duties. And God seems to say one thing, I need to do this, and maybe there's another command that says I need to do this. And you need need wisdom to work out. Is that because I don't understand God's word? Is it because of sin in my own heart? Uh, What do I do about these things? But that's wisdom that grows You begin to tease these things out by the metamorphosis of your mind, the transformation of your mind. And the outcome of this, and this this comes through being steeped in the scriptures and learning God's word, reading it faithfully, being careful with it, thinking it through. And so the outcome is this, that you, you don't simply read the Bible, but you approve of it and you see it as pleasing and acceptable and perfect. And that's the sign that a mind is being re- renewed. That it's not trying to get away from God's commands. Or trying to make up reasons why I don't need to care about God's commands. But rather, in heart, your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength, oh, everything about you is given over to what God tells you to do. So are you you hearing that command this evening? Do not be conformed to this age, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the start of your reasonable service. But then Paul moves on, secondly, to rethink, to cause us to rethink relating to other Christians. This is all a a vital starting point, what we've just said so far, uh, is a vital starting point to what he's about to say next in verse 3. And what he says, uh, what he's about to say, carries with it apostolic authority. And Paul says in this way, by the grace, uh, verse 3, for by the grace given to me, What grace is that? It's the grace of apostleship. 
And so he's speaking with apostolic authority. And he's saying it to everyone in the church. And so we are to hear what he is about to say. What does he say? I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. There is that temptation, isn't there? It's a persistent problem amongst Christians, a temptation to think highly of yourself and look down on other people. And in particular, in connection with particular gifts, perhaps. You think you've got a particular gift, and therefore I'm going to look down on other people who don't have that gift, or don't seem to want to use their gifts in the same way that you do. And uh, he's going to talk about gifts in a moment. But so, so one could have a very exalted view of myself in the church. You know, that, that me and my totality, with all my opinions and all my abilities, that I'm the person that's going to really make a difference to this church. I could think that. You could think that. And you could believe that you are really God's gift to the church. And without you, the church is doomed. (laughs) Doomed. Some people actually think that way. And you may not ever say it, but you might begin to think it. And it's a pattern of sin that people bring with them into the Christian church from the the way of the world. And it's one of those patterns that we must not conform to. Instead, we must be transformed uh, and able to see ourselves in a new way, to see ourselves with sober judgment, to be able to look at ourselves and make right assessments of ourselves before God of what we really are, and then see a real place in the local church where our gifts can really then be useful to others without looking down on other people. I started this evening speaking about people who think you can be a Christian without going to or being connected with any church. But that's not Paul's thought at all, as you see. He makes it clear that a Christian is always part Of a larger whole. And he uses an analogy. He says that a person is a member of a body, verse 4, for as as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And he does this, he works this out in more detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He speaks of various scenarios uh, where you need to think differently. As a Christian about the gifts of others and your place in the church. When he talks about eyes and ears and feet and so on. uh, All of these are necessary for the body to function properly. And so in Paul's thinking here. uh, Being part of this body is part and parcel of living the Christian life. Now notice with me a subtlety that could be easily missed. That he says in verse 5, though many, we are one body in Christ. And then he goes on to say, and individually, members of one another. Members of one another individually. That's important. 
there are Christians who talk about themselves as being part of the church generally. I'm a Christian. I am part of the wider church of Jesus Christ. And often people who don't go to church, they'll say, yeah, but I'm part of the, the invisible church. A church you don't have to see and don't have to go to. I'm part of that. And those same people may never, actually, never go to an actual church with actual people in it. And may be willing to be floating Christians going from church to church. And maybe in a somewhat supercilious way, we'll say something like, yes, I love the church and I'm part of this great wide body of, the, of Christ called the church. But here's the problem with it. There's a very subtle problem of avoiding any significant interaction with real people. And here again what Paul says here, individually, you're members of one another. You're connected individually to other people. There is a real connection between you and the people who are part of this church. In this place, with these people, in this church. If you're a member of this church, that's what you are. And so the the unity of the body is no, no nebulous concept, a theoretical, abstract concept of being part of the one church of Jesus Christ. It has a real effect on how you live in a particular location. And it's, it's in those interactions with people that helps us to see ourselves with sober judgment. And as we'll see in a moment, to serve one another with our gifts. I think this challenge is a very common view in the, of the Christian life. Uh, it's a view around that what really matters in the Christian life is me and Jesus. Um, as long as I'm having my quiet time every day, uh, every so often, and I pray regularly, well then, you know, the church is dispensable. I don't need to be committed to going to worship, still less do I need to actually be involved in people's lives. I can just dip into it, in and out. After all, I've got my quiet time and prayer. Me and Jesus, we're okay. Let me tell you what's not going to happen if you treat lightly the church of actual people and just dip into it now and again. You're not going to know membership one of another. You're never going to know that. You're never going to be challenged. You're never going to be trained to think of yourself with sober judgment. You're never going to stop thinking of yourself, perhaps as a little bit higher than all these other Christians. In other words, you're not going to experience and enjoy and be thankful for the transformation of your mind as you, uh, and you will continue to be conformed to this age. And you might say to yourself, yeah, but I'm having my quiet times. I'm reading my Bible. Won't that change me? Well, of course... It will have a beneficial effect. God is gracious. You know, the problem is that the unchanged mind has many blind spots. And the heart remains deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9, I think. 
And so, if you're just reading your Bible by yourself, which everybody should do, by the way, just in case you're wondering, if I'm saying don't bother, you should read your Bible every day. But here's the thing. You will not be challenged about your sin because you privatize Christian faith in a way that will, that's... And you will not be challenged in a way that you would normally be by other Christians simply by having a quiet time. And you will remain... See, that there, you'll, re, you'll remain a, a stunted, diminished Christian weak in sanctification if you're not engaged with other Christians involved in their lives. That's why it really matters to go to the Bible study that we have in church or the monthly men's and women's groups. You know, in those locations, we can have discussion maybe during the study or maybe afterwards. We interact with one another. Don't just chit-chat and share what's been happening in life, but actually engage with each other spiritually. We can have discussion, ask questions, be challenged in areas we never thought about, perhaps wouldn't think about by ourselves, even with a quiet time. You see, when the Holy Spirit brings us to Jesus and regenerates us, his purpose is to have us put in a local church with real people. And those people are people with whom we are to get involved as we undergo that continual metamorphosis of mind and heart and life. So here's the last thing. Third point. Play your part. Play your part in the church. Paul recognizes that because we all have a different function, in verse 4, we have been given different gifts, different graces, are worked into our lives. And Paul's exhortation is a simple one. Use them. Use your gifts for the benefit of the church. And so he gives this list in verses 6 through to 8. And, uh, and this is a list that is not intended to be an exhaustive list. Uh, it's bigger, there's more things that you could add to it. And Paul gives lists in other letters with different things listed. So we mustn't limit our use of thinking about gifts to these little things that he's mentioned here. But notice that there are two parts to the list. The first four items talk about exerting, exercising gifts in certain spheres. So prophesying, serving, teaching, exhorting. And then the last three talk about using gifts with certain attitudes. A generous spirit, with zeal, with cheerfulness. Without going into all of those, let me say that the principle is this. That where there is a need and you have a gift or ability, then do it. Don't just stand back and let other people do it. And when you do it, do it with an appropriately godly attitude. Sometimes people take on tasks in the church, but they do with such a bad attitude. Make sure they, they make sure that you know that they're serving you. That can be really unpleasant. 
And friends, we need to be diligent in this and ask ourselves, are, are we playing our part in this church? Are you engaging in its ministry by whatever means you can, by using your gifts? Are you willing to test gifts? Or are you too ready to say, that's not my thing, that's not me? Or even worse to say, that's a bit inconvenient. Are you lazy? Is it the case that you can't be bothered? You come to church, attend a service, go away again, and no one sees you till next week? On the other hand, you may be here regularly and often, and, uh, and maybe even serving, but as you, as you do so, you're still in the habit of looking down at others, on others. It's one of the dangers of having a gift, a gift of helping, gift of administration, gift of, I don't know, setting out chairs and just doing things. Some, some of you are really good at that. But you could have an attitude that says, why is nobody helping me? I'm better than all these people, and I look down on them. And so you need to learn to look at yourself with sober judgment in all of this. Friends, our Father is in the business of sanctifying us through his Son. And to do that, he puts us in local churches with real people. And we are to make then the best use of the opportunity to be transformed, to become part of the lives of others, to use our gifts in service of others, and to the glory of God. And that, my friends, is us offering our bodies as living sacrifices, our reasonable service, holy and pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wonderful grace of, of, uh, that you work in us in salvation. Thank you for the many graces you work in us in our lives and the gifts you give to us. Thank you for the church and the blessing it is, the family that we become as we are added to it. We pray you'd help us. Help us to take seriously the implications of the gospel, that we may look at ourselves with sober judgment, that we may use our gifts to serve others, and we may be a blessing to all around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.